This is day five of the 2019 Palm Springs Bible School. Our second period teacher is Brother John Popel. His general subject is the king who fell. Today's topic is here there be giants. Brother John. Well, good morning again for the last time. It's a, it's a little thinner here, but it's, uh, this is the survivors group, I like to think. <laughs> so that's always good. Uh, it might seem repetitive, but I will uh, definitely take the trouble to offer my thanks. Uh, my thanks principally go to everyone who's filled a chair at some point this week, because that's, that's what's necessary. You can, you can study anything you like, and Shane will know there's no point in standing, standing up in front of an empty room. So people who have the, the love for their God, the love for their Lord, and the love for their scriptures to come together and learn together as we all do learn from each other. Uh, I respect that, I respect you, and I thank you for that. That's been great. Some particular thanks, Chris. Again, no, no, no one gets anything I have to say unless Chris does his job. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't hear me, so that's awesome. Jeff and Kelly for making the opportunity possible, and Shane and Lynn for coming down. I, I just feel very privileged to have had the chance to, to choose a co-speaker, and I, I couldn't have chosen any better. So I didn't even take a dig at him. How about that, eh? Is he, is he crying again? <laughs> it's no good if he's not crying. <laughs> Here we are. At, at the end, we've pretty much finished expositing the song. We've got a tiny bit left. And then, having done that, we want to say, okay, if this is true, if the message of the song is the description of Solomon's spiritual fall and the education and lesson to us that even pure self-sacrificial love which is true love, will still end in fatality without God. How does that help in fitting in as a jigsaw puzzle piece, and as you've been doing in the atrium, to seeing how multi-books of the scripture have a lesson to teach, another lesson to teach, of which the song can now play its proper participatory role? We'll see that. That will be good. In the meantime, however, we do have a few verses left in the, in the last chapter there. Have the last chapter open or not as you choose. And all of a sudden, a bit of a surprise, along appears to come an additional character, right when we don't really need one. The bride says, we have a little sister. Her breasts are not yet grown. What should we do for our sister on the day she's spoken for? The day she's married, I assume. If she's a wall, we will build towers. If she's a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. After which the bride concludes, I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. Confusing. So first of all, who is the little sister? And the most common answer you will find in the literature, tragically, is that it is the little sister of the bride. Makes sense, because the bride says, we have a little sister, so that would seem to be who it is. But it isn't. It's one of the few things you can actually prove. And in fact, to say that it's the little sister is the little sister of the bride is, and I'm practicing my American vernacular, I'm copying from Jeff earlier in the week, is a rookie move. It's a rookie mistake, in fact. A rookie mistake. Why? Because... The scripture is explicit. The bride is the only daughter of her mother. Are there any only daughters in the room? Who's an only daughter? Yeah, how many sisters do you have? <laughs> yeah. So if she's the only daughter, it is proof positive she has no sisters. It's also a strong implication that she does have brothers, otherwise she'd be called the only child. Right? So if she's called the only daughter, there's a strong implication that she has brothers. And in fact, we meet those brothers as early as chapter one. So we know she has brothers. And in fact, that's who she's quoting. The little sister is the bride. All right? The bride does not have a younger sister. 
the little sister is the bride, she's quoting what her brothers used to say. And you'll see why it fits totally with the context. She's now the most important female on the planet right now. And she's quoting when her brothers used to say, oh, we've got this little sister we've got to take care of. We have a little sister. She's, her breasts are not yet grown. What do we do when the day she's spoken for? If she's one thing, we'll have to do all this for her. If she's another thing, we'll have to do all that for her. The brothers are just being a little bit bossy, as older brothers can be. And they're just treating her as if she's a little bit useless. You know, only a woman kind of thing, as brothers can do. And they'll have to take care of her. And she's saying, well... Hi guys, hi boys, look at me now. Are you a monarch of the most in, uh, important country on the earth right now? You're not. Oh, okay, well maybe I'll help you out. You know, I don't think she's angry or mocking, but there's a little tease going on that she's proud of her achievements. And, and whilst her brothers wrongly thought they'd have to do everything for her, she says, well, no. I might become a wall or a door. We'll think about what that means in just a second. Well, I am a wall and... I've got here by myself, and my breasts are like towers. We'll, we'll think about that in just a second, too. So I didn't need you. Thank you, my brothers, for thinking you had to do everything for me. But actually, I have succeeded on my own. And that fits in the context, the broader context of the song. Is she a wall or a door? If she's a wall, we will build towers of silver on her, say the brothers. If she's a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. Either way, they think they've got to take care of her. So what do you think the, the, cinema, the symbolism is for a wall or a door? Protection? Protection? Yeah, I think... Virginity. Sorry? Virginity? Virginity? Oh, well, she was a garden locked up. That's right, but we know that's no longer true because she invited him into the garden uh, to taste its choice fruits. A wall keeps things out, a door lets things in. It might be as simple as that. And the point is what there has been is there's been a conflict, an unintentional conflict of culture. She is a Lebanese who has left her country. She's an immigrant and come to a foreign country where there's this worship of this god, or well, there isn't really now because the king isn't doing it anymore. And so you've got this unintentional conflict of cultures, haven't you? You've got the Lebanese bride with the Jewish or the Israeli king. But it wasn't her that yielded. The bride says, I am a wall. I have maintained everything about myself. I'm still Lebanese. I still have the goddess Ashtoreth leading me, and my husband, he follows her too now. I'm a wall. He is the door. The bride has prevailed. She is the wall. Solomon has collapsed. He is the door. So the brothers were prepared to deal with her either way, because obviously an immigrant to a different country can end up just involving in the culture of that country, uh, but not, and not that any of that matters except who is God. The culture of what foods you eat or what sports you watch doesn't matter at all. But the concept of changing gods has always been of vital importance, particularly to the scriptures. I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. Now on the surface level, she may simply be describing that she has a voluptuous physique, that's fine. But there's always going to be something spiritual that's meant there as well. Why is she emphasizing her breasts are like towers? Here's my uh, little hypothesis that I intend to demonstrate. Tower is power, and that's been true in the human psyche from the beginning until the present day. What is the precedental tower we have in the Bible? Babel. And what's the purpose of Babel? Why build it at all? Yeah, power. 
because we have a name. Let's make a name for ourselves. Come, let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. This shows how important we are. We have built this big, tall tower. So how much more meaningful now does it become that the Tower of David that Solomon was talking about in the first half, before their consummation, suddenly he now wishes to praise people in terms of the Tower of Lebanon. Power has switched from the things of David in the first half of the song to the things of Lebanon. And that was all part of a lot that we saw a lot earlier. In fact, it's been a human fascination, literally up until the present day, who's got the tallest tower? And it used to be the United States with the Empire State Building. And once again, with the World Trade Center towers, you remember those? And then it was, oh, and then this one's American as well, Chicago, Sears Tower. And then it was beaten by Malaysia with the Petronas Towers. I've seen those. And then it was beaten by Taipei, Tower 101. I've seen that one. And the one I haven't seen is the absolute monster that they built in Dubai. Has anyone seen that? Kingdom Tower, it's called, or Caliphate Tower, Bur Khalifa, which is almost one and a half times anything that's been before it. And, and it's all this constant competition. It's always carefully recorded because at the end of the day, we're still quite childish. It starts off with building your sandcastle on the beach, doesn't it, and kicking your brothers over. Make sure you do that, that's important. And making sure that you have got the tallest tower. And what starts on the beach as a child, just the human psyche doesn't change that much. In fact, when uh, Islamic terrorists decide to try and take down um, the Western system, how interesting that the, the, the best way they thought to do it was to actually knock over the tallest towers that existed in the Western world. And what was America's response to knocking over the, these towers being knocked down? Build a bigger one. And there it is, Freedom Tower, whatever it's called. 1,776 feet high. Do you get it? 1776, celebrating some disastrous act of rebellion and <laughs> <laughs> trashing some tea. <laughs> That's a waste of tea. That's a terrible waste of tea. Either way, tower is power. So I think what she's saying is, I am a wall. I'm the one who prevailed. And the reason I got where I got wasn't due to my brothers. Wasn't due to my intellect. Wasn't due to some political machination. It was my sexuality. It was what I looked like. In appealing to Solomon, my breasts are like towers. This was the power that put me to be queen now of this country. So I think it's a fairly straightforward translation, and again, it makes good sense in the context of what we're reading. In fact, that allows us really to read through the last few verses and make them all make sense. We have a little sister say the brothers, or she's quoting them, if she's a wall, we will build towers for her. No, I am a wall, and my breasts have taken me to the position of power, thank you very much. I don't need my brothers, she doesn't hate them, she's saying, I don't need you. My victory has come via myself and my own sexual appeal. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. Makes sense now why that's the next line. Solomon made a false god out of an excess of fertile women. Remember that tremendously elegant phrase. Because Solomon idolized women, that's why this success was able to be achieved. And so the last verses of all, you who dwell in the gardens, let me hear your voice. What does that mean? Well, if this is, again, fertile women, you who have who've made this your home, you who are devoted to acts of pleasure and hedonism, 
Tell me what to do. Give me guidance. This is fantastic. I am having so much fun, says Solomon. Those who dwell in hedonism, guide me. And so who speaks? Well, she will, because she's skilled in this. Well then, come away, my beloved. Come away from where? Jerusalem. Yeah. God, essentially, or the apple of his eye. God, by, by proxy. Come away. And the Hebraists point out this is the word flee. Flee away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of pleasure, on the spice-laden mountain. So he solicits counsel from those dedicated to hedonism, those who dwell in fertile women, and she leads him away to pleasures. So it's a beautiful ending in a worldly sense. You know, the couple end up together off, marching off into the sunset. Marching off where? Marching out of the gates of Jerusalem and off to go play on the hills. It's a tragedy in a spiritual sense. Flee away, my lover, and be a gazelle or a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Remember, he'd always dedicated that. I will go to the mountain of death. I will go to the ruling power of death. I have gathered my death with my pleasure. Remember, this is the center. All these three verses go together, and that's the final scene, that she leads him away out of the city into the hills of pleasures, and they enjoy themselves together. The bride lures the king away from Jerusalem. Make no mistake, the Song of Songs ends in tragedy. Fortunately, even though that's the end of a chapter and a book, it's not the end of the whole story. Solomon's story is not itself completed. And for this, let's just note, not that it means too much, the biblical book order uh, that we have, or rather perhaps the one that we should have. In the Jewish order of the scrolls, this is the order. There is the book of Job. There is the book of Proverbs, many of which written by Solomon. The next book is Ruth. The next book is the song, and then Ecclesiastes, in that order. Now, again, you don't want to read too much into the order of books, but we've got these backwards, and I don't think that helps, because Ecclesiastes is clearly written at the end of Solomon's life, and if you have something after that, you're inclined to think it's the kingdom or something like that. Whoops. This is the uh, appropriate order, and there's Lamentations, and it goes on after that. I want to focus on these four books together. Proverbs, then the next two are Ruth and the Song, and Ecclesiastes to finish. Proverbs, Solomon writes, and he writes many things, but one of the most important things, one of the most pervasive things that he writes is, which woman are you going to marry? And he's talking to males and females both, because it's metaphor. Are you going to marry Lady Wisdom, who stands in the streets and calls to you? Or are you going to marry the seductress of pleasure, who, interestingly stands in the streets and calls to you, albeit by night, not by day. Which woman are you going to end up with? And he points out some of the, uh, what do you call them, the characteristics by which you can recognize the two women. Lady Wisdom, just four. She will cause people to dwell securely. By me, king's reign. By wisdom, I guess, that makes sense, okay. She works hard. Very good. She opens her hands to the poor, an act of righteousness, and she is clothed with fine linen. What's fine linen represent? The righteous acts, which is what 
we see here anyway. Okay, so she's clothed with righteous acts, she works hard, kings reign via her, and she causes people to dwell securely. It's all explicitly in the text. Okay? The seductress pleasure, we've looked at these verses already in Proverbs 7. Her feet never stay at home. Her linens are from Egypt, not of the righteous acts of the saints. Her bed is perfumed with myrrh. It is the gateway to the chambers of death. Okay? Those are the four things we know about this lady. And Solomon's saying, and ultimately he's saying to himself, which is the, the one part of the audience that never listened to him, he's saying to himself, which woman? Who are you going to marry? Wisdom or the seductress? Those are the four things. Give safety, a bed of righteousness, of the righteous acts of the saints, works hard by her king's reign, or the one with the Egyptian linen, the one who walks the streets at night, who has the bed of myrrh, which is the gateway to death. What's the next two books of the Bible? It's Ruth and the song. This is the point. It's the description of those two women. Ruth is Lady Wisdom. We'll see it explicitly in the text. And the song has described Solomon's adoration for the seductress. And Ruth, ironically, of course, is his great-great-grandmother. So it's in his own family line. So he's already seen and heard of the life of, of this one. This, this woman he already knows. This one he got to meet. And he still got to choose. She provided safety and a home for Naomi by being able to be the, basically the, the income earner to bring income into the house to give safety for Naomi and herself. She is righteous. Boaz comments, I have heard of all the righteous things you have done for your mother-in-law since you chose to come here to Israel. She works hard, gleaning in the fields and coming home with this monstrous amount of grain. And she gives birth to David, albeit several generations later. And David is explicitly mentioned. It's the last word in the book. The last verse in the book is the birth of King David. Why? Because by her king's reign. That's, that's the prophecies that had to be fulfilled for Lady Wisdom. And we've looked at the song. We've seen the things of Egypt uh, in, in the bride in, in the song. We've seen that she walks the streets and squares at night. We've been shown that she is the mountain of myrrh to whom Solomon will commit himself. And she's, we've seen her call, flee away from Jerusalem, come with me instead. So it's all quite explicit. There's not a lot you have to kind of read in between the lines. The lines are, are, are really there. Solomon poses the question, which woman? The next two books of the Bible show you the two different women. And finally, of course, given, given Solomon's superb choice, there is of necessity an act of repentance when he realizes, I got it all wrong. The very question that I posed in my wisdom, and I got it wrong. I need to put things right. And now, seeing the song for what it is, it takes its rightful place in telling this much bigger, more beautiful story. This story falls apart if this isn't actually saying what it's saying, what we've seen it to say this week. And I think that's a valuable lesson. I think the rest of this demonstrates the coherence of the bigger biblical picture. So the song is written as a chiasm. Remember, we've seen this. You have mountains, a call, doves, a head downwards, seeing from head downwards, Tower of David, and then the centerpiece, their sexual union, and then you have not the symmetry, but the anti-symmetry. 
Now it's the Tower of Lebanon, or the Tower of her breasts. The king sees her from the feet upwards as if he's beneath her. The doves are now in the king's eyes, not the, bri uh, the bride's eyes. And the bride calls the king away from Jerusalem to the mountains of pleasures, the mountains of spices. Okay, we've seen that. That's, that's a review. And so what actually starts out is that the song starts out on an axis of glory. Like calls everything's right with the world in the first half of the song. But then on this very fulcrum, it flips around and everything is wrong and leading towards tragedy at the end. Okay, is that fair? Just given what you see. Ruth is written the same way. And we did a week on it. We don't have a week, but that's all right. At the beginning, there's disaster. Israel can't even sustain life. And they leave Jerusalem, they leave Israel for a, a foreign country with a false god, Moab. There's famine and mourning. There's famine in the land of Israel and mourning because literally people are dying. All the husbands are dying. Ruth loses her husband. And Naomi, in the worst piece of advice she's ever given, when, the, when they're coming back to Israel, says, oh, you're best off, you're best off staying in Moab. I don't think her spiritual brain was switched on at that particular moment. That's the worst thing she could do. She might survive physically. Stay in Moab, says Naomi. Bad idea. And then Ruth makes a testimony and a conviction and a confession of faith. And many people emphasize the great friendship between Ruth and Naomi. I don't wish to belittle that at all, but I think the more important thing that Ruth said was, you have a God, and that God will be my God. I choose Israel's God. There's a spiritual union between Ruth and by her choice, her choice of husband, if you will, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And after that, everything flips around. And so Ruth comes to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and the famine stopped. So there really is bread in the house of bread after being told to go to Moab. Ruth gains a husband after losing a husband. This is the marriage to Boaz. I don't see that as the center, you understand. The marriage to Boaz is merely antithetical to the death of uh, Marlon. There's joy and plenty and celebration at the marriage and a marriage feast, in contrast to the famine and mourning. And finally, in the last verse with the genealogy, the true or the best ever to date king of Jerusalem is born. So you can see that same pairing of, of antitheses. King of Jerusalem is born, everyone departs Jerusalem, joy and plenty, famine and mourning, gain a husband, lose a husband, direct to Judah, direct away from Judah, all around that fulcrum. Okay? Which means that if we lay that chiasm next to the one in the song that we've already seen, where the king is at his table in Jerusalem, but eventually is led away to the mountain of pleasures, the joy and plenty you read about in chapter 2, against the spiritual poverty of him saying, I'd rather be guided by hedonism, gaining his bride and getting married in chapter 3, and then becoming enslaved to her and totally failing to be the husband to lead, uh, calling his bride from Lebanon and then being allowed to be led around and sealed by that bride, all around the sexual union of the king and the bride. Now look at that slide. And you can see why there are adjacent scrolls in the, in the Jewish order. They are really describing the two different women and, as a consequence, the two different stories that happen. Because in actual fact, now they're opposites to each other. Those are opposites, joy and plenty, famine and mourning, king gains a bride, Ruth is bereaved, king directs bride from Lebanon to Jerusalem, Naomi says, no, go to Moab, and they're opposites all the way down. That's rather pretty, isn't it? 
That's the hand of God. That's not my creation. I'm not smart enough to create something like that. No one is. That is the hand of God. But we have to read the song for what it's saying before we see the fullness of the pattern. So in the song, you have an axis of glory, which around this fulcrum flips to an axis of tragedy. And in Ruth, you have this axis of tragedy. The whole story is a mess. And on this fulcrum, it switches to an axis of glory. So you should be able to find identicals, right? King in Jerusalem will match king in Jerusalem. Joy and plenty will match joy and plenty. It's the same story. God just ripped it in the middle and stuck the end on the beginning and the beginning on the end. So is this how you do it right? Oops, wrong. <laughs> this is how you do it right with the right bride. And this is how you do it wrong with the wrong bride. And how ironic that the very king who was born at the end is the father of the king who ran away. Yeah, I'll get out of the way. But <clears throat> I have made about 1,600 slides over the years for, and I'm sad enough and nerdy enough to know that, uh, for, for various Bible schools um, functions. And if I'm told to keep just five and dispose of 1,595, I'm keeping that one and four others. I can't, I don't have Shane's articulacy, I'm quite serious, to tell you how much that means to me. You'll just have to see it for yourself. But if you see it for yourself, you won't need me to tell you how much that means to me, because it'll mean the same to you. That is beautiful. And the different centers are the spirituality of this union and the hedonism of this union. Let me be clear on one thing. This slide, if misread, may appear to demonize or denounce sexual activity. Not true. What it's saying is this is the throne. It's not saying sex is bad. It's saying sex is a bad God. God is a good God. Any other human activity, sexual or not, is a bad God. So I'm, I'm decrying hedonism, not sexual activity. That's an important distinction. It shouldn't be our God. And for years, for centuries, people have read the Song of Songs and said, this is dirty because sex is evil which is wrong, but being the world, the world has finally done away with that error and has jumped into an entirely new error by saying sex is magnificent and it is the whole point of the piece and that's why this book's great. If you read the modern expositions, not Christadelphian ones, but the modern expositions, that's what you'll see, I'll show you. It will be said, here's one professor, the power of eros here in the song is so strong it obviates the need for theodicy or theology. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? It means... <laughs> right, and now the translation. Here are the subtitles. Sex is so wonderful, you don't need God. Read it again, that's exactly what... Sorry about the... Uh, the uh, again, the study of God, the explanations of who God is and the words about him. Okay? The power of Eros here is so strong, it obviates the need for theodicy or theology. So I'm not exaggerating when I say that the pendulum has strung, swung so far the other way that now, oh, it can take a while, isn't it? There we go. And that's where we have it. But that's a beautiful thing, I think, that we get to enjoy. Unfortunately, I'd like to leave that on for another half an hour, we must press on. Um, for what it's worth, um, there's a reason why Ashtoreth is the goddess of the Lebanese. 
Lebanon is the same, or essentially derived from the Hebrew word Lebanon for the moon. It is literally the land of the moon. Why they call themselves the land of the moon, I couldn't tell you. Um, and, and moon, of course, is the secondary power of the heavens. The king, uh, the sun is, the, is seen as the king of heaven, and the moon is the queen of heaven. Do you remember the queen of heaven quote in Jeremiah? It's the same goddess, those Asherah poles or whatever they call them. It's the same goddess that they're worshipping. Lebanon's deity was female, not male. Ashtoreth was the moon goddess, all right? So um, when you find that in, in, in Jeremiah, it's like, well, how on earth did this false goddess get in here in the first place? The false god that they came up against was usually Baal. Why? Because Baal was resident to the land they moved into. So where did this Ashtoreth come from? Answer, Song of Songs. It's the goddess of the Lebanese. Solomon fell to the Lebanese bride. He fell to the land of the moon, worshipping the moon goddess, because an Ashtoreth is listed as that first false god that he fell to, as if that was the most important thing that he did. As Solomon grew old, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Lebanese, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, Sidon being the capital of Lebanon at that time. So realize what he was responsible for. Whatever happens to Solomon, we can think about that in a minute, there is a trail of destruction and wasted lives and trashed spiritual death in his wake. He is very, very guilty for what he has done. And after the song, and we've seen the beauty of Ruth and the song coming together, comes the book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, the Hebrew word koelet, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And this is... Uh, the words of Solomon. Now, I'll bother to take 10 seconds to say it is Solomon because there are theories out there that the Ecclesiastes was written by other than Solomon. Uh, this is, uh, again, demonstrably incorrect. Um, the teacher was a, a son of David, and fair enough, the Hebrew only says descendant of David, so it could be any of the kings of Judah, and people like to pick their own. But he also says, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Every son of David who was king was only king over Judah in Jerusalem. The only son of David who was king over Israel in Jerusalem, not king over Israel in Hebron or Terzah or Samaria, king over Israel in Jerusalem was Solomon. So it's 100% clear this is Solomon's work. No other descendant of David ruled Israel from Jerusalem. Solomon is the author. So let's just take 10 seconds to make that clear. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. This is clearly written by an older man with regrets. And I suggest to you, since it is Solomon, that it's the very end of his life that he writes this treatise. And there is a sense of recovery there, isn't it? Look at this word, still. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Not he taught the people knowledge. It suggests he used to teach the people knowledge maybe a long time ago. And then something happened which took him away from teaching knowledge for quite a period, but he came back. Because he was wise, ultimately, he resurfaced. He fought his way out of the fog of lust, and he came back to teach the people knowledge. Solomon returns at last, I suggest, from the mountains of spices and retakes his seat in Jerusalem and teaches the people knowledge. And what does he say? He says this. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. 
Every now and again, people are asked, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? I wonder how many sisters claim this one. <laughs> it appears to say, your probability of being righteous as a male is 0.001, and as a female is 0.000. Good luck with that. Is that just misogyny? And the answer is, it is misogyny if anyone authored that except Solomon. With Solomon, that's a beautiful statement. I don't think he means one man among a thousand men. I think he's talking, I know this story about one man and 1,000 specific women. And maybe there was a righteous man there in the end, but my goodness, I made 1,000 wrong selections. Who could be that foolish? So this is actually, if written by Solomon, and only if written by Solomon, he's detailing what he sees. I chose 1,000 women, I nearly killed myself. My comment is self-indictment. I made the wrong choice a thousand times. I posed the question, will you marry Lady Wisdom or will you just chase the seductress? And I answered that question in my own life a thousand times and I haven't got it right yet. So it's the beginnings of recovery when you can see the self-indictment and I think it's important to project that because I do know a significant number of females who find parts of the Bible extremely insulting and this particular set of verses most of all. With this explanation, Solomon is only indicting himself. And I think it's important to be able to explain that. And it makes sense that Solomon fell. It's part of a bigger pattern. Always there's a natural version which fails before a spiritual version that succeeds. That's kind of obvious. Adam is the son of God, but he failed. Jesus is the son of God. Nahor is the elder, Abraham's the younger. When Jesus says he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jesus is actually saying he's the God of the second son, the second son, and the second son. Please notice that. And he's standing there as the second son of God telling them that. But that's not what they saw together. Aaron before Moses. Moses was greater. But Moses before Joshua. Joshua was greater in terms of leading the people. One who failed to bring them into the promised land and one who succeeded. Saul as Israel's first king or David as the second king the spiritual or the natural. And therefore, this is where we are. Solomon, the son of David. You say, that's why he's a type of Jesus. No, no, no. This, the whole point is he's the type of Adam. He's the one that came first and messed it all up because he had natural in inclinations. He was David's natural son at a time of natural temple and a time of peace. And Jesus will supersede him in all those ways. The Old Testament before the New Testament, the covenant of law before the covenant of grace, and ultimately, perhaps the best comparison of all, is you and me. You are born of a woman and you are born of the Spirit. And the first birth only guarantees that you're going to die. People say the guarantees are death and taxes. That's not true. As many, many people have skipped taxes all their life. <laughs> I'm not naming. I'm not going to point any out. But, but no one skipped death. Only in the second birth do we find life. So that's where we are. Just, that's why this huge pattern shows us why the Song of Solomon was always going to be a song of natural disaster, not of spiritual victory. That's why. So it fits in there too. Solomon was specially blessed by God, yet he squandered that blessing. That's fair, isn't it? Haven't we heard that story once before? There's another story we need here. Who else was specially blessed to become basically a superman and threw it all away? I hear you, Kay. Samson, Solomon's spiritual twin, I put it to you, just a metaphor. God made a giant 
He grew, Samson grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, so that he did all these mighty works, including killing, killing some Philistines with a jaw. But how many Philistines? A thousand. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting. There's little, the little echoes you get. Right. Was he a, a physically large man? Quite possibly not. It doesn't need to be anything. I'm not saying he had an extraordinary physique. He had an extraordinary power with whatever physique he had because it was the power of God. God gave Samson unique physical strength, whatever physique he had. But the giant fell. He fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, a story you know. And the rest, as they say, is history. But God redeemed the fallen giant. The Philistines seized Samson, gouged out his eyes, but the hair on his head began to grow again, the symbol of his covenant with God, after it had been shaved." Let's think about Solomon's story the same way. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. God gave Solomon unique intellectual strength, the intellectual giant. And what happened? The giant fell. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my death with my pleasure. The song, of course. But God redeemed the fallen giant. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he once again was able to teach the people knowledge. And so when we see them side by side, or perhaps just a little anecdote, a little view, <coughs> Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother to introduce them to the wo woman he's chosen, which was of which nationality? Philistine, so a follower of Baal. Great choice, Samson, but it's, it's Solomon's twin. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards them. Suddenly there was a lion in the vineyards that they'd never seen before. Now, if you live anywhere around vineyards, like in California, and I've been to uh, one myself, um, you will know lions don't go anywhere near vineyards. You don't find a lion in the vineyard. They don't like man-made places. They also don't like open, exposed places. And a vineyard, for all you might think, there are vines covering. It's always actually very open, exposed land. You can see that for yourself, although that vineyard's in South Africa. So there's a lion in the vineyard. And why would we care anyway? I don't care where the lion came from. Or do I? Didn't we translate this? What's fertile woman? There was a lion coming out of the fertile woman. That's what the symbol says. The lion came out of the vineyard. The danger for Samson came from fertile women. Now, this particular lion, he rent like a goat. So he might have got a bit cocky and said, hey, there's no risk for me. Not as if there's any vineyard lying in the valley of Sorek that's going to cause me a problem. But there was. Also, did you notice the grammatical error that God's made? As they approached the vineyards, the lion came to him. Well, they're together. What, why should we correct God and say the lion came roaring towards them? Because it certainly did. Why him? Because it's his danger. His father doesn't have a problem with fertile women. His mother doesn't have a problem with fertile women. They approached the vineyards, but the lion came for him. It was his problem, if only he could see it. The big picture then, God creates supremacy. A physical giant, an intellectual giant. Sexual distractions precipitate the collapse of not one but both of those giants. And that's where the Song of Songs belongs. It takes its jigsaw puzzle piece part 
in this beautiful, bigger story that goes through kings and judges and Ecclesiastes. And then God finds redemption for that fallen giant. What's the lesson? Why would God do this? To show us that neither physical nor intellectual supremacy will bring salvation. I think that's an important lesson. I think it's an important lesson for today. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength. The prophet had already said it. But in Samson, you have a physical supremacy like never before. Do we have a problem as a community following those who are physically supreme? Probably not so much. Several hundred years ago, and back in the times of the Old Testament, yes. And the man who's head and shoulders above everyone else would be seen, would be looked up to in more ways than the strictly geometrical. Do we have a problem as a community worshipping the intellect too much? Yes. So how funny. Sure, we've learned this lesson. There's a simple two lessons and we still haven't grabbed the second one. We, still, we may even be getting worse. It may be that when someone says, yeah, but I've been to a university and I've got now four degrees in Middle Eastern studies and I know all about what the... And, and never mind, the Bible says this, it's wrong. Believe me, I'll take this and... I'll show you via my intellect what I know. Careful. Solomon is not our Messiah. These giants fell. And if these giants fell, what's the implication? The implication is simple. We need another giant. We need a different giant. So we've spent this week here, but in reality, it is a bigger picture once again. There is a judge the judge who fell, the king who fell, and the son who stood. It's a much larger story. You can't fit it in a week. So we've been focused on the king who fell, but never failed to notice. There's a much larger story that this occupies. Ultimately, the spiritual giant is the only place we can find redemption. And in that, we can find redemption for all. And as we've seen, from, particularly in those writings in the Ecclesiastes, Solomon, ultimately, for those who've asked me, quite a few of you, I believe Solomon ends in Christ's victory. That said, that isn't the happiest ending of all, because how many of those thousand women that he should have led to God, how many of them have ended in Christ's victory? I simply don't know, but I don't have a good feeling about that. Okay, one man made it out. Good, I suppose. But how much destruction he caused before he made it out. And we need to think about that in our own lives. It's not just a question of, well, I hope I get it right at the end. Watch what you do today. There's no point in me being such a fractious member of this society that I end up driving tens and hundreds of brothers and sisters away and then do a deathbed confession and realize I should have been a nice guy. Yeah, great, that saves me. Well done, Solomon. But what wreck have you got in your wake? Today matters. We need to not only embrace Christ's victory, but emulate Christ's spirit that brought Christ's victory. Ultimately, Christ's victory does find redemption for all, and Solomon, I believe, ends within it, as can we all.